0: People will remember your voice and the tone of your voice is what will indicate two things for people after what reminds them of you and what they remember about you.
1: So I'm excited to have this conversation with you. You and I have spoken on Clubhouse, and we've also spoken on Zoom a couple of times. And I think that what you do really fascinates me. And I I have to admit, Marshall, I really don't fully understand the concept. So maybe before we continue too far, for people who don't know who you are, can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit of story about how you got here?
0: Oh, man. My name is Marshall Davis Jones. I'm a world bridger. And uh, that term came to me by some weird accident, but it was the best way to describe what I wanted to do in the world. And that is connect one thing to something else and be in the middle somehow. And that started with spoken word. So I was a competitive poet in the slam poetry community. And uh, it requires you to have a way with words, but also to be able to bridge ideas powerfully to strangers very quickly who will rate you right now from one to 10, based on how they feel. And uh, I learned a lot about how to read a room by making a lot of mistakes in communicating about how important it is to not necessarily just stand on your own opinion because that's what you believe to be true, but to really tap into what others believe and understand and what they value. And mastering words was like a thing, you know, like how do you put words together? And I became really good at it and very formidable in that arena most likely because of my history in battle rap. But one day I had a friend of mine get on stage and he goes, you know, tell them, tell them about the blood leaching demons and and, and and things like that. But what stood out to me was one blood leeching demons. Like we need to talk like what's going on in your life. But two, the tone that he was using to convey his words. I was like, I don't, I know you and I know that you don't sound like that. What is that? But I also knew that for some reason that was what was captivating everyone and when he won at the end of the night, I said, Bro, what's what's this? He was like, you know, I'm in acting school, which I knew. And he said the very first thing that they train before they teach any other techniques is voice, because the voice is life. And that became a germ. And that germ has led me here.
1: How long ago was this? That was
0: April 2011 national, what was it? The uh, what would they call it? They call it the the grand slam finals. So basically it's like, if you're a poet, it's like right before you go to the main event, it's like the the AFC championship kind of thing. And uh, yeah, man, so everybody competes and it's the creme de la creme. And so a lot, it brings in a lot of energy. The New Rican Poets Cafe, is a place that uh, the bricks, the bricks and those walls are, are covered in stories. And you can feel that in that room. And then when you bring all of the poets that are drawn to like the finals, it's just a lot of like electricity. So you really got to bring it. And uh, yeah, so it was a great night and it changed everything.
1: Mm. You said a lot of things that I'm interested in. And I want to follow up with, but I'd like to ask you a question that if you're uncomfortable, like, let's not do this. But you said that you used to do battle rap, slam poetry. And the way that I envision in my mind is poets write words and they internalize them so it's part of them. Is it possible for you to recite a piece of poetry or to give us an example of some of the things you might have done in in the things that you've referenced? Oh, man. So,
0: yeah. So I have a poem. I can do... introducing the new Apple I person complete with multi-touch, doesn't it feel good to touch? Doesn't it feel good to touch? Compatible with your iPod and your iPad. Doesn't it feel good to touch? Doesn't it feel good to touch? No friends. There's an app for that. No life. There's an app for that. You're a complete. mm, We're working on it. Doesn't it feel good to touch? Doesn't it feel good to touch? Doesn't it feel good to touch my world? has become so digital I've forgotten what that feels like. It was difficult to connect when friends formed clicks. Now it's even more difficult to connect now that clicks form friends. But who am I to judge? I face Facebook more than books face me, hoping to book face-to-faces. I update my status, 420 spaces to prove I'm still breathing. Failure to do this daily means my whole web-wide world will forget that I exist. With five friends, with 5,000 friends online and only five I can count in real life, why wouldn't I spend more time in a world where there were more people that like me? Wouldn't you? So that's an excerpt from a poem I actually wrote in 2008 called Mm -hmm. Touchscreen. This was at the boom of, um, I was sitting in front of my computer and I had MySpace and Facebook. And like there was like five other competing social media platforms that were trying to be supreme, and my brain just scattered into and disintegrated into a few pieces. And I'm like, I can't, I can't even fathom this right now. And I go outside, and I just wrote this piece to speak to what I thought was happening. And uh, yeah, that that particular poem wound up taking me. A few places, uh, Will I am asked me to perform for his Transform conference, um, multiple technology conferences. In fact, um, someone s- snuck into my ear that it made its way all the way to Apple headquarters. Uh, like as something that they played in like a meeting. And I was like, oh, I mean, I'm my address is here for the royalty check, but um, but it was interesting to speak to the world. But it, what resonated at that time was that everyone in the world was feeling the same way and uh, tapping into that. And it seems that people feel that way now.
1: Well, you flowed into it so quickly and you gave us the explanation and the backstory to it. But I wanted to give you a moment to just acknowledge how how cool that was. I love the wordplay. Uh, there's some memorable hooks that you dropped in there, how friends create clicks and then clicks create friends and there's some other ones there that I'd be embarrassed to try to recite, but I, I just I just love that. That was pretty awesome. I can only imagine you on a stage in a darkened room with a spotlight and a mic full a room full of people just listening in and probably clapping and and just experiencing that. Like you you're doing it here grounded at on a like sitting down with a microphone, but the energy, the electricity that you spoke about, I can I can visualize that at least in my mind. Just question about writing. What is the process like for you to to come up with something like that? And then how long does it take for you to then make it a part of like your whole breathing, speaking so that it feels so natural to you?
0: You know, when I was, uh, when I was a kid, I used to play with Legos and uh, they were substitutions for the toys that uh, I didn't get for Christmas. And Legos and the idea of Legos has really shaped a lot of my thinking about how to stack ideas and play with them and break them and then put them back together. And so it depends on what it is. Like, so when I'm a hired writer for a company that says, oh, we want you to talk about procurement. Like for example, SAP was like, we want to talk about procurement. And there's this like, all right, well, what are the Lego bricks to procurement? And then how can I put those Lego bricks together in a way where by the time I'm done, I have you know, something that is memorable. So, you know, line for line for line. And the as far as the embodiment is concerned, something about slam and the competition of slam, what I loved about that art form is that it forces you to have a heightened state of arousal because you're competing. Like you're competing and you know that other people want what you want, and that's the feelings. You want emotion. And... What I had to learn when I first started slam, I was very, I used to pop lock and move around a lot. And there was sort of this indication that I was overexpressing and I wanted people to kind of feel and see everything. And it wasn't until I started doing the work on the voice that there was like this gravity It was about having sort of like a controlled explosion, if you will, where it's like you have this energy, but the audience gets to watch it and go, whoa, versus like a Tesla coil in your living room. And that can be a lot. And so, you know, the embodiment piece was something that came later. It didn't start there. It was like, oh, you know, pure, raw energy, energy, talent, me. Now it's like, well, here are my bricks. And I have a certain level of control over them now because I know what I can do. I know how to stretch things. I know how to speak within context and environments. And, you know, that's, that has now become, you know, the, by osmosis poems that if you go on YouTube right now, you'll find about four different versions of the piece I just shared. And each of those versions will represent a different place that I was in this journey that I'm. So there's one where it's like, yeah, beep, 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 beep. It's like, whoa. And it was cool at the time. You know, it was it was exciting. It was fun. So I guess there's two ways to answer this question. The first is getting it into the body and making the words dance will help because it does. And usually a heightened performance like that, it does become like this choreographed dance, if you will. And then if you can settle in the body, it's sort of like the dancer who has spent so much time dancing that they are able to have grace and then it just
1: falls into the body naturally. Is it one of these things that once you internalize it, you don't ever forget it? You could recite it at any given moment? Yeah,
0: yeah. You you start to lean into what the psychologists are starting to recognize as embodied cognition, which is the understanding that the brain isn't just like up in our heads, but that the body is a um, you know a representation of the mind as well. And usually for like, even like actors, it's like, they usually want to get a cold read. At least that some people have that mentality to get the, the logic of the words just stuck in there. And then they can play with it with their bodies. I have a different approach where it's like the, the body gets involved almost immediately and it helps because it encodes things.
1: Um, if somebody is listening to this and they're familiar with slam poetry or battle rap and say to themselves, all right, that's a very impressive skill set that you have, mm-hmm. uh, your ability to manipulate words to control your tone of voice and to embody these words and ideas in your physical self. Mm-hmm. And they say, I can't do that. I want to be able to start to peel this back a little bit and to be able to give our audience something that they could try so that they can start to take steps towards where somebody like yourself is at. Mm -hmm. You said earlier that voice is life and you talked about voice work. So maybe we just need to step back a little bit and, and just give people an understanding of what does that mean? Like what is voice work? If I've never heard that term before or understand that there's ways that we can use our voice for different impact and to different affect. Tell us a little bit about what that is.
0: So a lot of times you'll hear someone say something like, I don't like how you said that to me. Mm. And then the person will respond, what are you talking about? What do you mean? It's like, it's, it's the way you say you said that and it's this elusive kind of assessment or judgment that comes where you're like, well, this is the way I talk and deal with it or whatever have you. Most of the time when people think about voice work, they'll say, oh, you know, they think about pitch like, you know, there's guys want their voice to be deeper. And in fact, I'm going to send you I'm going to send you uh, audio so yeah. that you can hear where my voice was when it started because I sounded like a man. I sounded prepubescent. It's it's actually quite embarrassing, but you need to be able to compare and contrast so that people aren't under the impression that this is puberty. It is not. Like I was 26 years old when I started this uh, situation, and well past it. But anyway, tone or timbre is the quality of a sound, and that is detected instantly your voice makes an impression on someone in a 10th of a second. That's the same amount of time that timbre of music makes an impression. There's a book by Zachary Waller or or Walker, if I'm saying his name, but it's called um, nothing but noise. And it's about timbre and music. And he talks about voice um, very briefly, but that very small fraction of a second, you ever like dial um, when you're listening to the radio for those who ever turn dials on radios, you know, we're, I'm aging myself, but we used to turn in a car. Like we used to listen to an actual radio and, and we had to allow ourselves to turn to different stations. <laughs> and you can tell like you're switching stations that split, 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 and you're deciding In that split moment, whether or not you're going to stay at that station or not, people make those kind of tonal decisions all the time. And your voice is giving away that data like that. So when I say voice work, what is the appropriate tone for the context of the discussion that you are having right now? A lot of people are brilliant and they have amazing content. And this is actually where I want to lean into Clubhouse and when I first came into your room, in the future room. You were speaking and I remembered instantly being like, I don't know who this guy is, but I'm listening. And then you told this really beautiful story. And again, I had no idea who you were, but I remembered the gravitas. I remembered how exceptionally, uh, how exceptional the delivery of your story was. I'm like, this guy, whatever he does, he does it well. And he does it at a masterful level. And then, the affect of your tone was, I cannot forget it. There's a certain, I was attempting to figure out how I wanted to describe it, but you have like a a surgical warmth. That's the best way that I could describe it. It's like very precise and to the point, but it's warm. It's like the, the neurosurgeon that really cares about opening up the person's brain and they're not just cold and looking at it like, okay, you know, this is a person but I still have to open them up and I still have to do this procedure, but I'm still dealing with the person. And that affect is what people will remember. Your voice and the tone of your voice is what will indicate two things for people after. What reminds them of you and what they remember about you. There's neuroscience that supports all of this where, you know, and Maya Angelou said, you know, people will forget what you said, but they'll never forget how you said it. And there's neuroscience to support that. Like in certain memory tasks, they can remember if you said words in a sad way, they will remember that you said them in a sad way, more than they will actually remember the word itself. Same thing with any other tone. And we are drawn to tonal decision making. For example, I go to a restaurant, you go to the waiter or the waitress and you say, What's a good what's good food on this menu? And they'll point out this here, this dish, like, oh, this is one of my popular ones. But then they'll say something like this. Well, you know, but this right here, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like that. Why? Because in their tone, I was able to ascertain that that experience was so enriching for them. I want that. And when we're speaking to people, people are making decisions about whether or not they want to sound like us would I want to have the experience in my life that would make me sound like that? So you take a, you take someone who's who has a problem where they're like really agitated, like, you know, I just, uh, uh, and then you come in and you're like, well, I have a solution for you, but that's the feeling that they're carrying. They actually don't want it. They actually want something else. They want a different tone, a different texture. And if you're like, you know, I see where you're coming from and you have a tone that is calmer, that's smoother around the edges. And they're like, ah, I want that. I want to feel like that. I test this with my nieces and nephews, you know, when I go visit them, you know, they have a moment where they're upset. And I, because I understand that children, children are aware of tone at four months old. By the time, By the time we acquire language, we've already spent an additional twelve months, just understanding tone. Kids don't get the words, but they understand tone at at least four months, and sometimes even sooner. And so, if I want to get through to my nieces and nephews when they have a tantrum, I get to their level, and I know that I'm using a tone that is counter to the one that they're whining with. Because if I give them that, or if I give them this, because I'm agitated. All that's going to do is exacerbate the situation. But if I come in a tone that is calming and now I'm in control here, it's very interesting how fast, it's it's amazing how fast certain things just dissipate because we're speaking in a tonal language. So to answer the question about what is voice work, voice work is that it is understanding how to modulate your tone to be assertive to de-escalate, to move things along, to slow things down, to speed things up. All of that information is in your tone. I'll give you another example. I was on a call and it was like this, and it was a 15 minute call. And the gentleman gets on and he's like, oh, you know, um, I have um, I'm 15 minutes and we're here and, uh, you know, I want to make sure I can be in this call and and so on and so on. And, uh, you know, let's just talk about what we're going to talk about. Da, 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 da. And so, you know, we're going in and he asked me, so tell me something about voice I wouldn't know. And I said, well, you know, I can hear the urgency in your in your voice because the time is limited. I can tell that you're already running to the next thing. And I understand that you're trying to be as mindful of our time. And I appreciate that. And he took a moment to sit back and he, because it was like, oh, wow. He didn't recognize that. His voice was betraying his mind. Where you are and where you're going, that can be heard. That's when we can tell when people are with us. We can tell when someone is off somewhere else in the distance while we're having a conversation with them. Their tone will betray where they are, where, they, where they're going and where they are. And, uh, you know, so you want to be able to create a space that's what people mean when they say, like, you know, want to have a you know safe space. It's tonal. If I'm if I'm trying to de-escalate, if I'm having a problem or an argument with a spouse, or if I'm, you know, and I have a tone that's very agitated, and it's pretty much like I don't care what you have to say, I'm graded, it's sharp, it's pointed. That tone says we have a problem here. And so voice work is being able to masterfully move and control the nervous systems of the people who are within earshot of you.
1: You had said something that on that sales call where the person seemed to be speaking faster, or that call, not a sales call, where they're speaking faster and that betrayed their their mind. Hmm. Is it betraying their mind or is it reflecting their mind? Because I think people speak fast because they think I have a short period of time They're thinking about their next thing, and they're also, like you you were saying, they're mindful that you have a 15 minute window and you gotta get out as much information as possible. So they're rushing. Because I feel that sometimes, especially those people who are not super self-aware of their tone of voice Mm -hmm. and how they're communicating with people, that it clearly says what they're really thinking versus what the words that they're using. Mm -hmm. Like if somebody says, I love you, but they say it in a way that isn't reflective of how they truly feel inside, the, the people who are paying attention will pick up on that right away. You mm-hmm. gave the example of the waiter or waitress where they go through like, here's what's popular, mm-hmm. probably what they were told to say. They might even be pushing the special today because there might be an incentive for them to do that. But when they turn to you, kind of like an aside, but you know, between you and me, so the tone already changes,
2: mm-hmm. it
1: feels like they're letting you in on a secret or something they don't tell other people. Um, my personal favorite is this other thing and not enough people know about it. Mm -hmm. And then you said that's when they have you and you're in. But they can also be using that consciously to manipulate you to think this is the what is, you know, uh, things that most people don't know about and it's a real insider secret. So it could be used in a lot of different ways. One, it could be used to manipulate. Mm -hmm. It It could be used unintentionally to really communicate what it is that you feel inside. Or... You're just totally unaware and you're just doing what you do. Lots of different ways to do this. So as a person who's trained in this stuff, who's super hyper-conscious and aware of it, how can you tell if someone's being genuine or can you when they're using their voice and ways to communicate certain ideas?
0: There is a saying, and that's a brilliant question because it's the moral dilemma. You know, they say if you can feign sincerity, and it's true because that is the smallest unit Of vocal communication. So there's like a diff there's like these stages of amplification, right? Like your tone amplifies your silence, and then your voice amplifies your tone in that order. And then your words amplify your voice. So when you're able to get to the core, is what makes a great salesman a great salesman. When they say the sign of a great salesman is when they can sell anything. And it was always like, well, why is that? It's because they're like magical. It's like, no, it's because they understand what it means to be completely infused with the belief that the product that I have in my hand is the best thing ever. It doesn't matter what they touch. It matters that in their possession, like when they say, sell me the pen in my possession, this pen becomes valuable. You might give it to somebody else. I'm like, ah, it's just a pen. So the the thing that I find interesting is that this kind of control is like giving loaded guns to people. And sometimes a loaded gun is used to protect someone. And sometimes a loaded gun is used to bring harm that was undue. And so it's always this weird, um, you know, like I'm pretty... I'm pretty like, yeah, like about where and when, when I train people, you know, because I recognize like, oh my God, you can like really like get by. If you understand that, was most people think that content, which which has been promoted, that content is king. Well, the king on the chessboard is powerful, but then there's the queen And so maybe tone is queen, but when she moves, when she moves, she moves, she moves the board and she moves people. And so when you have mastery over that, that's what makes a great storyteller a great storyteller, because technically storytellers have to suspend the reality that you're currently living in right now in exchange for a different one. In one that is believable, and one that takes you from this place and transports you to another place. And so storytelling is, you know, in the business world is, you know, I guess you could say well-intentioned deceit, because this isn't real yet. It's not real. It's not true. But I'm going to give you a vision of the world that I believe could be. And I want all of you to get behind me and that's where you have like the Theranos lady, right? Yeah. Who was known for her voice. The people be like, oh, her, her voice. was. There was something about her voice. And you, so you see where that led people or anyone that has great charisma that has led people astray. Usually they have these qualities about them that people were drawn to. And so you have to become mindful of who you allow yourself to be drawn to in that regard.
1: The Theranos lady, let's bring that up because she got a lot of money from a lot of people and bought into a vision that was completely like, it went against physics. Like it it didn't make sense to anybody. And when I, when I watch her TED talk and then the ensuing documentary films about her, her voice sounds very fake to me. It almost seems like it is, is an affect that she's applying very consciously and I wonder why people didn't pick up on that, or maybe you have a different perspective. Can can you break some of that down?
0: You know how certain magic tricks don't work anymore? Like how someone can't sell you like a open, like a bottle and with water in it and say, This is super nitro juice. Like <laughs> no one can do that anymore, right? Because we all figured that one out. And we got it. So you can't pull that one over us. I think every generation, there is this thing that will go until it doesn't anymore. When Elizabeth Holmes was doing her rounds, she was something exotic to observe. It was like, whoa, here's his voice, and then like, here's his idea. And, you know, deeper voices are associated with a certain level of confidence and assuredness. And you're like, okay, yeah, sure. Once you find out on the other end of it, oh man, I got, God. There, there are people who are magicians who watch other magicians and know exactly how they did the trick. So for so someone like you, who does this for a living, you're like, really? You guys fell for this crap? But all of those spectators that enjoyed being entertained They were. There were so many anecdotes about people being drawn to her voice, which let me know that that was doing something. But the documentary comes out and I don't really think people have leaned in too much into the idea that she had an affect that she was putting on and kind of opening that up. It's, It's almost like that last place where the magicians don't want everyone else to know. That you know, there's these things that you can change or manipulate to draw people's attention, and if you're doing it for a short period of time, like for, you know, an investment call, where you only have to put that on for an hour at most, two hours, you're not living with it, and you don't really have to pay attention to it. It's exotic for the moment, um, but she wouldn't be able to do that twice. Now people will listen to her with a more fine ear. In fact, I believe that Clubhouse started to filter for that as well. All of these social social audio apps began to filter, but even still people were getting scammed on the app. Why? Because for every for for in as long as humans have existed, honesty and deceit have been polar ends of what is required. There are there are animals that survive and thrive off of lying giving a different perception of something. And then in exchange for the folly of whoever gets caught, they eat. And then there's other other animals that thrive on, look, let me show you exactly what I am. I'm a lion, let me roar, here I am, right? And we will always deal with those ebbs and flows. And so I don't think there will be a day where you would be like, no one will ever be able to pull the wool over my eyes or, or the eyes of humanity We'll get more keen. We'll get more fine. But there will always be new tricks and new puzzles to solve. And I think part of us, we have to be predisposed to kind of wanting it. Otherwise, imagine imagine a world where we just looked at everything and was like, "Ah, that's crap. That's BS. We wouldn't go to the movies anymore because we would be like, that's not even true. So I think that there's some part of us that wants to be lied to for entertainment purposes, as long as we willingly pay, you know, $8 and 50 cents, you know?
1: Right. I think we want to be lied to in more ways than just in, in entertainment. And my mm. belief is that not knowing is a scary thing. And we, we don't have the time to understand everything that, that is in our lives. And so we readily make up stories. So we lie to ourselves. That's the first lie. Mm. And then we accept the lies that other tell us, uh, from, from government from religion from society we accept all these lies and it just because it makes us feel a little bit safer so those who are able to tell a better story tend to be more effective liars Mm -hmm. i'm using that word kind of loosely here everybody i'm not saying everybody's (laughs) intending to lie but we, we tell each other stories all the time we told ourselves a story about how the sun revolved around the earth and the earth was the center of the universe or how the earth is flat and we want to believe in these stories because it makes us feel
2: safe Welcome back to our conversation. So when it gets
1: to storytelling, you referenced Clubhouse a couple of times here. What makes for a great story from a voice point of view? Because you talked about it intellectually. I'd love to have some examples from you so that we can make it super tangible. Maybe you can tell us a story in a couple of different ways or to tell us what you're doing while you're doing it. Okay. Right, so that we can understand like, oh, that's what's happening.
0: Okay. So here's the thing. I think that in this particular segment, it'll be better if you do this. So, Chris, I want you to think about the last great meal that you had where you were like, man, this was awesome. Okay? All right. So you have that image in your mind. Now I want you to share something that, within reason, that you're okay with, that has been challenging in the last month. But I want you to think about this wonderful meal as you share this
1: story. Oh, this is a tricky one. The tables have turned, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> okay, I'll I'll be super vulnerable and real with you. I'll just tell you, because uh, I was trying to look for another story that didn't involve such a personal thing, but I'll tell you. Okay, so I'm going to tell you the story, but I'm going to think about the savory meal, right? One of the most difficult things that I have uh, that I'm trying to work out is learning how to be on the same wavelength as my wife. I think we secretly jockey for control. And so when one of us concedes, it's perfectly harmonious. And when we have opposing ideas of control, what, what it might look like, that's where the tension starts to bubble up. And I have to learn how to understand to be able to control my, my reaction and my tone in situations like that so it doesn't drive my wife into a place where she's questioning herself and her own opinions. That's a real challenge.
0: Well, one, I appreciate that. You know, that's honest, right? It's, uh, that is vulnerable, and it's challenging because now you've now the, the, the juxtaposition is coming. So, and then we can discuss what we're doing. I want you to think about the most disgusting, gross thing. You don't want to touch it, you don't want it near you, you don't want none of it. And I don't want you to tell the story because I don't want you to sully how you just told it, but I want you to examine how your body feels right now.
1: Thinking about that, so you want me to tell you how my body feels just thinking about that thought? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, that. Like, eh. I could, I could taste it in my mouth, almost like my saliva tastes different. I feel like my skin is crawling a little bit thinking about this thing, and I want to stay clear, like six feet away from this thing, and it's super creepy. So, just whenever I see it, it is a creature. So when I see one of these insects crawling around the house, I just, I want to grab a tool or something and get rid of it as fast as possible.
0: There you go. Now, the reason why, and let's just go back to that other mindset, just, you know, just to wash that image. So what's happening? The part of the brain that looks at parasites and cross-talks. It's not, it's not directly like 100% connected to every node, but it crosstalks to the place where we make moral judgments. The word in Spanish, when you like something, it's uh, me gusta, which comes from the Latin gustar, which means to taste, which also lends itself to the English word gestation, which is what we eat. We say things like, oh, that left a bad taste in my mouth, or we sweeten the deal. Now, a lot of times when we think about flavor and taste, uh, we think about putting things in our mouths. But we actually, the nose plays a huge role in flavor perception. You know, anyone who's lost their sense of smell uh, also probably felt how boring life could be. So what happens when you don't want to touch something? You don't want to look at it. You don't want it near you the body starts to do all sorts of things to protect you. It shuts off the pathways to your airway, so you breathe a lot more conservatively. It creates a certain muscular tension to prepare you to sort of make your body something, a destroyer. It's like, I need to get rid of this problem. and all of that, imagine if you would have applied that energy to the story you just told me it would have had a whole different affect because your mind would be associating the problem with this thing that you don't want to look at and you don't want near you. The body is always doing its best job to keep us alive. And our thinking, and this is where I'd like to, 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 to invite a Venn diagram of imagination where the middle of that Venn diagram is the word is, right? Let me like you know, this is that. I think about this wonderful meal that I had and I think about my wife and I think about the conflicts that we have. And I think these are the things that I could do to draw closer to this image that I have in my mind because I want to be closer to the image that I have in my mind. I don't want to dis- I don't want to run away from it I don't want to avoid it I want to be right here. But if I don't want to be with this image as in my mind my tone is going to betray how I feel about the thing. And so when we use the imagination which has been proven fMRI scans, you know, we we can imagine this auditory imagery there's um you know imagery In the nasal area, you can imagine certain smells. That's not like just like, oh, it's in your head. It's like, no, you can conjure up these images, and they have an effect on how you're perceiving things. And we Venn diagram all the time. It's the reason why two people can look at the same thing and have totally different polarizing views, vanilla or chocolate. You'll get into a fight. Like, no, vanilla is better. No, chocolate is better. What are you talking about? Vanilla blah, blah, blah. And nothing's changed about chocolate and vanilla besides whether or not your ice cream has melted because you're too busy arguing about it. But the view and the point of view is embodied. So one of the things I like to work on and you know, very quickly is in a module, I just call it good food. But you can use good food really to do anything. It's not just about food. We use the word taste to describe whether we like something or not. Taste in music, taste in food, taste in clothing. So there's a strong connection between that system. In fact, there was a small study in the sixties. I've done a lot of weird research and found all these, like, it's like one paper that came out and it just didn't. But there were these doctors that they um, had hookups to this gentleman's esophagus and they noticed that when they said things that were displeasing, that the esophagus would spasm, and they were like, nah, I don't know. So they were, they were kind of playing this game of like walking by and just saying stuff that would just like suck around this person in the esophagus with like spasm. So there's this connection to the desire to eat, even when people are emotional. What's well, one of the first things they stopped doing? Stop eating. So there's a connection between, and or people that also, when they're emotional, they eat a lot, right? They, to, to, to get certain things. So there's this connection between how we feel and what we choose to ingest and if, or choose to reject. And so this is a very straightforward way to, within one context, you know, it's like the menu. I like that meal there. That was a really good experience versus, yeah, you mm I wouldn't eat that, I wouldn't eat that, I wouldn't eat that. My tone is saying, I wouldn't put it near me, you shouldn't either, right? Or I'll have what he's having, right? Um, there's that scene from that film where um, I'm trying to remember, but the young lady's having a great time at the other table, and the person goes, yeah, whatever that is, give it to me.
1: It's right? like when Harry met Sally. Absolutely, yeah. right? What was
0: your... What was your feeling, though? You know, because I know that we spoke to it, but I'm curious. On We saw how it felt on one end when you spoke about just describing the feelings. But when you spoke about it the first time, what did you notice for yourself when you were telling the story the first time?
1: It's very hard to hold two opposing thoughts. Mm. You told me to to capture in my mind the last great meal and, and think about that in whatever it did for you from a food, savory, senses, and then to talk about something that's an ongoing thing that my wife and I struggle with. Mm-hmm. So that's a point of frustration. Uh, of course, she thinks, well, I'm an idiot. I can't get it. And I think she's an idiot. She can't get it. So we're going to have to just work through this for the rest of our lives, I think. And so it's hard to hold two opposing thoughts. Absolutely. So I was trying to continually think about that savory meal while I'm describing this thing. And I saw that it affected the way that I chose the words that I chose. Like I, I, I realized I would not use this word normally, but I was like bubbling up. So that's like a cooking visual thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like I imagine a pot boiling or something. and And so holding a feeling from a different experience and translating it to a story to tell changed the story and changed the way I thought about it.
0: What if I were to suggest to you that we most of the time are holding layers of thinking that every conversation is, like in Photoshop, you have layers. And depending on what you overlay or blend determines the overall output of the final image. Sometimes what becomes challenging for us is if we're used to a certain image overlay. Let's say we have three layers to a picture, and like in this, that third layer usually is that. It's like, and then someone says, "No, take this image and put that there," and it's like, "Whoa, whoa! I'm used to this image being there. That's the image. That's the context with which I'm used to describing or talking about this thing." When we shift the image, it's a shift of context, and that can be a bit jarring when we have repetitions with a certain conversational dialogue, it's like you train, you train a lot of people to get over the fear of asking for money because the context with which they, when it gets to the ask part, how much will this cost? The image that they have that's there, that's stuck is I'm not good enough. I shouldn't be asking. It may be too much. They may not have it. In all of those contexts, they come to you because they trust you, because they've seen that You've broken that context 50 ways to Sunday and you have no fear. And they want to be able to put that image in that spot. So when they use the words, it cost X, there isn't a sign of shirking. There isn't a sign of fear. There isn't a sign of resistance or reluctance. And sometimes it takes a little while to break that context. You know, if it was just watch one of my videos and everything would change. They wouldn't keep coming back, but it takes its time. It takes its time to cook the new context and bake it into your experience. And so, yes, that feeling was like, whoa. However, even noticing any subtle change in difference is enough to go, wait a minute. What's that? Maybe I can lean into that more. And then it becomes just repetition like everything else that we've done and everything else that you've done.
1: Marshall, can you make it real tangible? Because now you're entering into a space where I think there's going to be a lot of interest here where people do have an unhealthy relationship with money. Mm. They're afraid of it. They're afraid to talk about it. They think it's bad social manners. It's culturally taboo to talk about money. Mm. It is a sign of self-importance for some people. It's a fear of rejection for others where if I say a number bigger than I think, then they're going to say no and I can't handle the rejections because it's going to crush my soul. Mm -hmm. So if I'm imagining a taste, it's probably not a good taste. It's probably not a good physical reaction, a memory or an emotion they're holding in. Mm -hmm. So can you make it real tangible? And you're right. Obviously, I've talked about it so many different ways, but it takes multiple exposures to a concept for someone to really embody and to be able to do on their own. So maybe we can add to that repertoire of tools by giving them something to do or think about so that the money conversation isn't as uncomfortable as as it might be for them today?
0: Copy that. So there's something in neuroscience called affordances. And affordances is the fancy word for anything that you can do with your hands. So it's anything. If I have a glass of water on the table, an affordance is that I can reach for it, grab it and drink it. I can do that. Um, If my wallet is on the table, if my keys are hanging up, my affordances are I can grab those keys. I can move them. I can remove them and put them in my pocket. I can afford to do that. When you're in a store for an expensive object, the affordance is I have to be able to exchange a certain amount of money to be able to touch it. If I buy it, I can touch it. So what is the affordance how can you feel that you can afford the, the, the experience of receiving the funds? That's actually the wrong way to look at it. The way that we're looking at it is that you have this thing in your, in your possession. The, the word sale actually comes from reluctant. When someone sells something, they're not eager to give it up. They're not in a rush. They actually really want it, but they're willing to give it to you for a price. It's a different perspective. Like I want my time, actually, because what I'm giving up in exchange for your money is time control. I will be beholden to whatever it is that you are asking of me. And I actually want that. I want to hold it. The curiosity is whether or not they can afford to have that from you there's two things that we can look at here when it comes to 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 lean into the food metaphor here mcdonald's mcdonald's is selling you a burger for 2 bucks so it's excitement and neon and bing 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 bing, bang 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 by and they're just getting people rolling in tá- and out if you go to some place like uh, like a caviar route or something it's a very expensive restaurant to dining experience, where there's a certain understanding that what has been prepared has been prepared well, and that in order to have this experience, you're going to have to pay for it. So, if we look at the Venn diagram perspective and, and lean into it. If you know for a fact that what it is that you have, and then in your body, you know what it takes for you to prepare it what it takes for you to plate it, to put it down, what it takes for you to design it, what it takes for you to map it out. You're very well aware of this experience and you are offering it to the other person. I want um, everyone to take a moment really quickly to do this exercise. I want you to just gently extend your hand as if you are just offering someone something that you know they can take or not. I want you to feel what that feels like. Here's this object, this item that you are unveiling, that you are showing, and it is in your hand. And I want you to feel it. I want you to feel in this item. It's like the person can take it or not. But if they do, there's a price. And I want you to lean into what that feels like. What does that feel like? Alternatively, take that hand back. I want you to put your hand out, but in your mind's eye, I want you to feel like that person needs to take it. What does that feel like? I'm not even trying to change my affect at all, but just this gesture, like, just I need you to take this from me, changes my whole being. It makes it sound like I'm pushing the item on the person. It makes it feel like, why am I so eager to get rid of this thing? It must not be valuable if you're willing to get rid of it so easily. Your time must not be so valuable if you're willing to get rid of it so easily. This is an embodied feeling. When we give of ourselves, when we offer ourselves over, and we open our hand, what is the intent? Because that will shape the tone with which it is heard from the other person. When you are there like, you know, You can have this where you won't. It's okay. I'll put it right back in my pocket because I'd rather it stay with me. And that thing that we're talking about, here's our time. Here's my time, energy and effort. And I would prefer it stay with me and my family and the people I care about. I'd rather watch Netflix. I'd rather play video games. I'd rather do something else. But for a fee, I'm willing to let you have this. And it's no longer about Your affordances is about theirs. Same thing with a uh, very expensive meal. Think about how it's brought to you at a nice restaurant, how things are laid down, how things are put down, versus how a bag is handed to you at (laughs) Chick-fil-A. Here you go. Boom. Thank you for your 14 bucks. Keep moving. Now, if you can do that at scale because you have a product that's, that's that impulse, that's an impulse buy, fine. But well, most of the clients that I'm imagining that you're talking to and the people that are that listen to you are people who want to have long relationships with the people that they're working with. And, and you know, 20,000, thousand, hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollar 40,000, 50,000, 100,000, 200,000 relationships are usually a little longer than thanks. Here you go. Take your back. And so it becomes an embodiment practice of where you, how you value the physical form that you bring. Cause it's not the fun, the final product is a product of your physicality. It's not just the final product. Most people who are very proud of what they've made, think like go a chef. Or a sculptor, or a designer that knows what they're doing, and the note understands like the typography understands like why they put this weighted thing here. In the essence of feeling, like ah, this is. mm." If you value it, if you value it, that becomes apparent immediately when you try to exchange it. When you talk about something, think about a thing or an object that you have that is your most prized possession. In fact, if you want to try this exercise of of imagining it, right, think about something you would never give away, something that is unsellable. You know, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't, not a day. Think about what it means to you. Think how it feels to talk about it, to remember it. Because your body, the embodiment, your affordances, the way that you would touch it, the way that you would hold it, right? Or, or something that's a value, you let someone, you should let them see it like a baseball card or something like that. You're like, yo, this is a Michael Jordan rookie card from whatever. The way you would want people to handle it, like this is precious cargo. When we are able to handle our offerings with that same fragility, that same value, not and when I say fragility, I don't mean, um, uh, cause people might make mistake me for, for that saying like, Oh, like you be fragile. It's like, no, you treat your time and you treat your energy. Like it is fragile. You treat your relationships like they're fragile. When people don't care, they just bust through your house, kick things over, just whatever. We're just making space. And when you do that, the people, they feel that and they don't like it unless you're playing football. Then you just knock them all over the place. But when you're exchanging meaningfully the embodiment of how something is treated. It's not separate from what's happening up here. So that would be my suggestion. And I think to the point is that something you do very well. You're like this is valuable, and I know it's valuable. And you know, if you want it, you can have it for this fee. And if you don't, that's fine. I know other people that you can probably go to. If I'm not the one for you, and that comes across every single time I watch you examine someone who wants to like learn how to close or they figure out what the do, do, do. it's the same energy. People say, "Oh, know your worth." And that becomes very abstract and ethereal when you leave it in the brain to abstract. But when you think about what you're going to do with your hands and with your body and your physical form, and you're like, if I valued this vessel, how would I handle things? Then it's no longer abstract and in your mind, but now it's in your body. And then it's everything that you touch the way that you put your mark on it will be clear.
1: I like that approach. It's a different one than the one that I try and help people with. So it's adding some ammunition to the arsenal of things that I can use to help people. So your approach seems to be very much physical, psychological, and feeling-based. So once you're able to associate a positive feeling or experience, and you talk a lot about hands and body, then you can see it in a different light. perhaps the body will tell the mind how to think and how to speak and the words to choose. So I, I I quite like that. That was really cool. Thank you. When you say to think about something that's not sellable, what comes to your mind when you say like, I have something I would never sell to anybody.
0: This is going to be, I guess, a bit on the ethereal side because from very young, I've had to learn how to let go of things I valued for life circumstantial reasons. And so, you know, the, it's not, I don't have a tangible item that I can say, you know what, this, this, this does not qualify. But if I were, if I were to give it a moment, you know, it's uh, this is the place where, you know, I don't know what people mean when they say they sell their soul but I think I've gotten to a place where I recognize that that isn't for sale and it's intangible, which I don't like because I there's a part of my mind that always wants to be rooted in, you know, because to be fair, Chris, I don't have many physical possessions where I'm like, Oh, you know, no heirlooms. Right. The only things that I have that are fragile is the, um, I've collected a lot of trust from people. like people talk to me about things and they tell me things. And I have a lot of stories in here, people that felt like my ear was the ear to hear a thing. And I think it's part of my you know personality base and probably what makes this work work for me is in, in that the fragility of relationships, those are the things that I you know it's like people. Like I won't trade one relationship for another. Like they're like, oh, you know, um, which which makes navigating business very interesting. Because you have all of these different vectors and angles and people are willing to betray others all the time to get to the coins. So that would be the thing, which is mm. I guess it's not it's not brick and mortar, but I know what it is.
1: Right. The reason why I asked you that question is because I think I netted out the same place where you do I have things, but things are just that they're replaceable. And I'm not an overly sentimental person. Like you said, you don't have any heirlooms or something that's not replaceable. I, Cause I even think about pictures of my children, but they're digital. So they exist somewhere. If I needed to pull them down, it's the kind of world that we live. In. I think it goes to this whole trend that we live in a increasingly dematerialized culture where we pay more for less physical things. We pay for experiences. And the iPhone is a perfect example of like how many different devices and physical things it's replaced mm-hmm. from from the map books that we used to carry in our car. Um, you're old enough to know. Yes, like, yes. That was the way you could navigate Los Angeles. Otherwise, you're kind of screwed. To the camera, uh, to an appointment book, just so many different things, a daily planner. And so it is increasingly becoming more difficult to come up with. A physical thing that you can hold in your mind and hold in 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 your imagination as something but it, it was curious how how you answer that question mm-hmm. i've enjoyed this conversation with you if people want to dig deeper do some voice work and and they're turned on by this physicality this embodiment that you've been talking about how do they find out more about you and where can they go all right
0: now so mindbodyspeak.com, M-I-N-D-B-O-D-Y, speak s p-e-a-k.com. And uh, you know, you can get a before and after and hit me in the uh, in the
1: inbox. Where can they find you on social?
0: Uh, Marshall Davis Jones on Instagram, Marshall Davis Jones on LinkedIn, uh, and those two things. I need um I would need your your course direction on like massive omnipresence on all of these channels Chris because you got it on you're like you're here, you're
1: there, <laughs> you're everywhere <laughs> the illusion of being everywhere at the same time Thanks. forever and always yeah <laughs> well, Marshall, it was a pleasure talking to you um, and I appreciate your time and I hope everyone that's that's watching or listening to this finds value in that and they dig deeper into your content. I think mindbodyspeak.com, mm-hmm. right? Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Mindbodyspeak.com is the perfect URL for what it is that you do. I, I can't believe you got that, but it, it's perfect. It says everything. It's super easy to remember too, because everything that we've been doing, all the exercises, your stories are about your mind, your body, and how you how you use your voice and how you communicate with the world. So thank you.
0: Absolutely. Thank you. I am Marshall Davis-Jones, and you are listening to The Future.
2: Thanks for joining us this time. If you haven't already, subscribe to our show on your favorite podcasting app and get a new, insightful episode from us every week. The Future Podcast is hosted by Chris Do and produced by me, Greg Gunn. Thank you to Anthony Barrow for editing and mixing this episode. And thank you to Adam Sanborn for our intro music. If you enjoyed this episode, then do us a favor by rating and reviewing our show on Apple Podcasts. It'll help us grow the show and make future episodes that much better. Have a question for Chris or me? Head over to thefuture.com slash chris and ask away. We read every submission and we just might answer yours in a later episode. If you'd like to support the show and invest in yourself while you're at it, visit thefuture.com. You'll find video courses, digital products, and a bunch of helpful resources about design and creative business. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.